Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hill Spring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. Glad you're here. Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. As we are walking through just this journey with Jesus, we're kind of in the final chapters of that. Luke, in his Gospel, describes it that Jesus had resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. And we're in that phase. We're actually in the last week, what we call in church life as, as Holy Week or Passion Week. That's the days we're describing, the days leading up to Jesus being arrested or actually being betrayed, being arrested, being put on trial, being executed on a bloody Roman cross. But that's not how the story ends. Amen, everybody? There's a Resurrection Sunday. So um, if you are relatively new to Hill Spring, you're like, hey, I'd like to find out more, take that next step. This Wednesday, we have what we call growth track, and that's really kind of orientation to Hillspring. It's, it's in two parts. You don't have to do both parts this Wednesday. You can just do one. Uh, but, so growth track step one is just kind of that, here's who we are, my story, the church's story, kind of how we got here, what, it, what we believe, so on and so forth. And if you would like to come to that, we would love for you to come to that. And so it's at 6.30 on Wednesday evening. We have childcare for your kids if there's students, there's youth ministry going on, kids. And so we've already thought through all that. We also, uh, we eat dinner together. It's a very loose term because it's pizza, right? But we would love for you to come. But then step two, like if you're new and like, hey, we'd like to kind of put our foot in the water and maybe jump on one of the teams and help serve. That's how you do that. You go through step two. So step one, be from 6.30 to 7.30, depending on how long winded I get. And then we take about a 10-minute break. My bladder takes about a 10-minute break, right? And then we jump back in about 7.45 for step two. So maybe some of you have been through step one. You're ready to come to step two. You can start that uh, this Wednesday, 7.45. We'd love for you to come. Love for you to come and, and be a part of that. So I uh, read a story this week, thought it was worth passing along to you guys. Um, an old, tired-looking dog wandered into a guy's yard, and like this dog's well taken care of. Had a collar on. He looked at the dog's collar, and he was well fed. So he knew the dog had a home, but the dog follows him into the house. Goes down the hallway, jumps on the couch, gets real comfortable, and the dog falls asleep. After about an hour, the dog gets up, goes to the door, kind of taps on it, and man, lets him out, dog wags his tail, thank you, and off he goes, right? The next day, same dog, comes back, scratches at the door, guy opens the door, dog comes in, goes down the hall, jumps on the couch, gets comfortable, falls asleep again. Man, just let him sleep. After about an hour, the dog wakes up, walks to the door, taps on the door, guy lets him out, dog wags his tail, off he goes goes on for several days. Finally, the guy just grows curious. So he writes a little note, pins it to the dog's collar, and says, your dog has been taking a nap at my house every day. The next day, dog shows up. This time he has a note pinned on his collar. And quote, he lives in a home with four children. He's just trying to catch up on his sleep. Can I come with him tomorrow? Right? <laughs> Some of Mark chapter 11 occurs on Monday. Some of it occurs on Tuesday of Holy Week. So let's, let's get you in the timeline of this Passion Week. Jesus has ridden the donkey into Jerusalem. There was the, you know, the crowd that was cheering. Hosanna, blessed he comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus goes into Jerusalem, gets off the donkey, walks into the temple. He doesn't really do anything in the temple according to Mark's gospel. And he goes back out to a suburb called Bethany, spends the night there, but he just kind of choose on what he saw at the temple and, and and i read by the context it really kind of disturbed him what he saw going on in the temple because the next morning i'm not saying jesus had a bad day but he kind of woke up a little bit grumpy 
And you see this in the context where he's going back to Jerusalem. He walks by this fig tree that is barren. It doesn't have any fruit on it. And, and Jesus, like the context, he wanted a fig. And he curses the tree right there in that moment, goes on into Jerusalem on Monday and sees what's happening in the temple. Having thought about it all that long, he clears the temple, stays and ministers, heals, teaches. And then that evening he goes back to Bethany. Then Mark chapter 11, verse 20, we have a day change. Now it's Tuesday, and that's where I want to pick up. Mark chapter 11, verse 20, it says, The next morning as they passed by the fig tree that Jesus had cursed, the disciples noted it had withered up from its roots. Like this clearly was supernatural, because when a tree dies, it takes a long time for the evidence to show up. But they walked by, clearly this tree has died. Verse 21, Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day, and he exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. And then Jesus kind of uses this moment, this conversation that Peter starts to go into kind of a teaching moment. And I'm going to be honest with you. I wish I was there. Like, this is one of those things that, like... Come on, disciples, ask a follow-up question because what Jesus is going to talk about, what Jesus is going to teach, you and I are begging for clarity. Jesus, what do you mean by that? Explain that to us. And even sometimes when Jesus would explain things, you would still leaving it a little bit confused. And he goes into this, and maybe the disciples did ask questions. And, and the gospel writers don't show it in the interaction. But what he's going to talk about is hard for you and I sometimes to embrace. Verse 22. Then Jesus said to the disciples, have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. Now I gotta stop. I, I, can't, I can't let this go. And we've talked about this and we've preached on this. We even touched on this in First Wednesday. I love history. I love a good documentary. I, I love reading about history. I love reading about church history. I love reading biblical history. I love reading about theology, right? Never once in any of the documentaries I've watched or the history that I've read, never once in all of history have I ever read a story where a mountain was removed and cast into a sea. Jesus just said, if you speak to this mountain, be removed and cast and see, and it'll happen. But in all of history, it hasn't happened yet. Yes, mountains have trembled. Yes, mountains have moved. But there's never been a mountain moved into the sea because a person of a faith spoke to it. And listen, there's a people a lot more spiritual than me that have prayed these big prayers. So what do we do with this tension of unanswered prayers? What do we do when our mountain is cancer? What do we do when our mountain is things in our marriage that are broken? What do we do when our mountain is a wayward child? What do we do when it's financial stress that we keep speaking to and yet it's still not moved? And then he goes into verse 25. But when you're praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Bracket, F, bracket. Normally I delete those out when we make the slides, but today it's in there for a reason. Because at the end of Mark chapter 11, verse 25, there is a note. And if you're like reading that on a tablet or, or whatever, if you touch that note, 
it'll pull up a footnote that says, some translations add verse 26. Right? So, let's grab from one of those translations that put verse 26 up there. But if you refuse to forgive, your Father in heaven will not forgive your sins. That's a big pill to swallow. I want to I put it up in, in what's, uh, it's called the KJ21. It's the King James language. You'll see that in the verbiage. It's the these and the thous and the yea verilies, right? And I want to put it up in, in, it's a new version that's kind of been updated in 21st century, KJ21. And I'm going to read verse 25 and 26 because it's one of the translations that includes verse 26. Okay. And when ye stand praying, forgive if ye have aught against any, that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespass. Verse 26. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now, we don't, we don't talk in ye verily and trespass. We do, those aren't, we're, and we can kind of get the gist of what's going on because we read it earlier in a more modern English translation, the New Living Translation, but you get the gist of what's going on. So there's a little bit of an interesting debate around Mark chapter 11, verse 26. Some include it in the text. Others put a footnote, like what we saw a minute ago, and say, but hey, some translations include this, some don't. Okay, I personally preach out of the New Living Translation. So in 2001, when I was working in radio, Tyndale had released kind of the first version of the New Living Translation. They send a box, a case of these things to our office. My boss hands me one, and I study Bible. And I mean, I'm an NIV guy, New King James guy, memorized out of all that. But I got this, and I just started reading, and it really just kind of freshened things up. And so I've been in love with the New Living Translation because it, re, it, it, it was an attempt to take the ye verilies and trespasses and put it in a language that we might understand. So I've, I've always kind of taught and preached out of the New Living. An individual years, years, years ago sent me this long email and talked about how evil the New Living Translation was. And one of the examples they cited of why the New Living Translation was so evil, they said, because it doesn't even include Mark chapter 11, verse 26. And I'm like, what? So did some research, right? And to be honest with you, if, if the translators were trying to change theology, if they were trying to hide something, they wouldn't have put bracket F bracket and look at the notes. They wouldn't have put that down in the notes that some translations include this part, right? So the New Living didn't include it, but as you study that, you kind of understand why they came to that conclusion. I know some of you don't enjoy history as much as I do. Some of you are like, uh, just bear with me, all right? If you really want to jump into the weeds on this, there's, there's, you can read, and there's all kinds of stuff about translations, right? I want to do my best to give you the Brent Kellogg version, the BKV, of why some translations have Mark eleven twenty six, and some translations do not include it in the text, but put it in a footnote, all right? Inquiring minds want to know, I want to know, right? Young people have no idea what that means, right? Okay, so roughly 1440 AD, there was a German goldsmith, but he was also somewhat of an inventor. He had this idea, and a guy by the name of Johannes Gutenberg, you got to say it kind of angry, Gutenberg, right? Um, he had this idea of the printing press. And so what was unique about Gutenberg's printing press is because not only did he make this big metal thing that was equivalent to the side of a page, he made removable metal type. Now, there were similar things to a printing press, but they were always carved out of wood. 
Okay, so, I mean, you talk about taking a long time, but if they wanted to print something, they would have to make the wood carving of it. Gutenberg was the first one to make it out of metal, and the type was removable, okay? Well, then you could take ink, put ink all over it, and then you could print multiple copies of this page, and when you had the desired copies you want, you could take all the metal removable type and then create another page, Sound effects included, right? And then you could copy that page, right? And so this was the beginning of, of printing mass production of books, even newspapers, so on and so forth. And so prior to the invention of Gutenberg's uh, printing press, for the most part, with a few exceptions, copies of books, particularly copies of the Bible, were actually handwritten copies. Meaning, someone would take an original script here, and then a scribe, that was his job. It's a job I would never qualify. I have the brain of a doctor and the handwriting of a preschooler, okay? No, I don't have the brain of a doctor. But like, like the scribe would sit for hours on end and just hand copy this text. Well, you can clearly assume pretty quickly that there's lots of room for errors. Words can be misspelled. Things can be mispunctuated, words can get left out. Even some of these were translating from Greek or Hebrew over to a different language. And so since it was handwritten, there was a lot of room for errors. The reason why I bring this up, the leading theory on why Mark chapter 11, verse 26, gets left out of some translations comes right at this idea that somebody made a oopsie. Okay? There's a big Latin term for it I can't pronounce. I don't want to bore you with trying to say it, but there's a big term for this when it comes to church history and the study of, of the Bible and so on and so forth. But if you look at verse 25 and verse 26, I want to put that up there, the words of how the sentences end are exactly the same. Who is in heaven may forgive you your trespass. The wording is exactly the same at the end of verse 25 in the end of verse 26. So the leading theory is that the scribe that was copying lost his place. And when he wrote that, he looked over at 25 and he's like, oh, well, I've already wrote that. And he goes on to the next verse. So eventually someone caught it. The problem is some of the earliest manuscripts that we have don't have verse 26 in them. Okay? There's another problem with Mark chapter 11, verse 26. This is the only place that Mark uses this phrasing of heavenly father and trespasses. So, meaning the idea of all the other hundreds of words that he wrote, he never uses this verbiage again. So, there's this thought that maybe a scribe somewhere along the way wanted to add clarity to what Jesus was teaching or reinforce what Jesus was teaching and potentially added verse 26 in there. So, was it an accident? that an early scribe thought he was done with the paragraph because the words are the same, and, and then he just kind of went on to the next? Or did an early scribe add it in to bring clarity? We're not exactly sure. So some translations include 26 in the text. Some translations put it at the footnote and go, listen, others don't, don't include this. Okay. Now, it's really easy to go, oh, they left that out. They are trying to change what Jesus... They're trying to water down the gospel. Like there's this easy temptation. You get on there with bloggers and they'll talk about how evil this is. That they are trying to change the words of Jesus. 
but it's not a theology issue. They're not trying to change the theology at all because this theology appears in other places in the New Testament. And they didn't remove it there. They're just saying, listen, there's, there's some stuff going on around Mark chapter 11, verse 26. The other places, there's several where this appears. One of them happened to be in the most famous sermon that Jesus preached. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And you guessed it, Jesus was on a mound. And there was a big crowd and he was teaching and he's teaching them how to pray. This is one of the things that he said, listen, when we pray, say, God, would you forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors? It's the same idea that God, as you forgive me, I need to forgive others. So it's not that the, the translators or the, the writers are trying to eliminate this theological idea because it shows up in other places in the gospel, all right? Now, I need you to nudge your neighbor and wake them back up because some of them are like, right? All right, so Mark chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, I'm in the KJ 21, so it's going to have the ye verily trespasses, all right? Let's read it again. And when ye, or you, stand praying... Forgive if you have anything or any ought against someone that your Father also who is in heaven, your heavenly Father, may forgive your oughts, your trespasses, your sin. Verse 26, but if you don't forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. The idea we are left with, if you just read Mark chapter 11, if you don't forgive, your Father in heaven will not forgive your sins. Right? Because some of us in here would go, great. It's over for me. Because <laughs> there is that one person that did that thing that hurt me, abused me, took from me, that I just can't. I can never forgive them. And so when you take this merit on just this verse, it sounds like my unwillingness to forgive someone is going to keep me from going to heaven. That's hard. So on the screen is a picture of what we call justice scales. Okay? What you have to do when you come up to something like this, you have to take all of Scripture. Oh, Scripture's contradicting itself. No, 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 no. You have to take all of Scripture and you have to kind of put what we know, what other passages say, and you have to put it in this, this scale to weigh it, all right? And so Jesus' invitation to people who would follow him was deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Let's be honest. If, if we read over the four Gospels, if we read the red letters of Jesus, he doesn't ever really give us this, do this thing Say that his invitation was deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He doesn't ever really give us with clarity if you've had this moment, if you do this thing, then you're saved. But there would come someone on the scene who would bring clarity for you and I to find salvation. This person who would take the message of Jesus outside of Israel, he would go to Europe, he would go to other continents, he would take them, and he would go meet people and he would lead them to Christ and, and tell them about Jesus and tell them about the grace of God. And then he would go to the next town. And then when he had the opportunity, he would write letters back to those people and those leaders and he would bring clarity to the message of Jesus and what he was saying. And he did give us, if you do this thing, then you'll be saved. It's the Apostle Paul. 
He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He gives us our clarity. He gives us our most in-depth theology that we have about salvation, about how we get it, who can be saved, and what it means. And one of those places that brings clarity is the, the book of Ephesians chapter 2. This is one of the most beautiful, most rich verses around salvation to kind of set the record straight of how I'm saved and who can be saved. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift from God, not of works, least anyone should boast. All right? So we take Ephesians 2 in our theology world and in church world, we, we sum that into this kind of beautiful, crafted, theological statement that I'm saved by grace alone, because Ephesians 2 says that, I'm saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. I'm saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Meaning, I'm saved by grace, I can't buy it, it's a free gift. Okay, I can't be good enough. I can't clean myself up enough that God goes, oh, okay, now you can say that. No, 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 no. It's a free gift from God. I cannot earn it. So I'm saved by God's grace through faith. Romans says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, that faith component. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. I'm saved by God's free gift of grace through my faith in Jesus Christ that he was the son of God in Christ alone, that he is the way, truth, and the life. And no man can come to the Father except through him. That makes sense. Say amen. Because it's big. and Right? I'm saved by God's free grace alone through my faith in Christ alone. And so when you take that, here's what Ephesians 2.8 does not say. It does not say you are saved by grace through faith, when you forgive someone who's hurt you, then are you saved? Because if it says that, now I've earned it in my ability to do or not do something. I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And so you have to take what Jesus says in Mark chapter eleven twenty six, and you have to play it on the scale and the rest of the theology that Paul would write in Romans, the rest of the theology Paul would write in Colossians and Ephesians. The scale tips to... Boom, I'm only saved because of the free gift of salvation through grace, through grace, through faith in Christ. So, what's Jesus talking about? Jesus was not talking about eternal forgiveness. He's not talking about my ability to get into heaven. My ability to get into heaven does not depend upon my ability to do something like forgive someone. Because if that's then salvation is dependent upon my abilities, and that becomes a work. He's talking about relational forgiveness. So you guys still with me? Because I know I went history, and now I've gone theology, and I feel like I've lost you. Front row, you guys still with me? All right, here we go. Jesus is talking about relational forgiveness. Let me say it this way. The biggest barrier, the biggest hindrance in our spiritual growth and our spiritual walk and our spiritual maturity, and sometimes even our spiritual blessing. The biggest barrier to those things is our inability to forgive others. If I refuse to forgive someone, my spiritual walk is just going to be stunted. I love BK, blah, 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 right? But I got to say some hard stuff. Believers, 
who never spiritually mature to the point where they can forgive others, where they can forgive someone who has hurt them, they might make it to heaven, but their life on earth is going to be hell. And they will never make it to that level of mature believer. They just won't grow. They'll just stay stunted. They just won't mature. And it's going to begin to show pretty quick, like they've been in church and been in small group for years, but they still behave like people that are just saved. Because this hindrance of I can't forgive them, it's what stunts me in my relational growth with Christ. So here's my fear when I teach this. That salvation isn't necessarily attached to my ability to do something. We read Mark eleven twenty six. 26. If you don't forgive, neither your father in heaven forgive your trespasses, right? And I explain that this is relational, not eternal. Here, here's my fear that someone sitting here is like, now, now wait a minute, what you're saying is I don't have to forgive my brother. I don't have to forgive my ex. I don't have to forgive that person. I don't have to forgive my abuser. I don't have to forgive my former boss. And I can still make it to heaven like you're saying I'm good. I'm so glad I came to church today. Baby, get the kids before he changes his mind. You know what I'm saying? Like that's the temptation to minimize it down. I don't have to forgive the people that hurt me and I can still be saved. Listen, that's not the heart after God. It's not the heart of a maturing believer who's becoming like Christ. When we boil down salvations to bare minimums, okay, what's, what's the bare minimum I have to do so I can go to heaven? When we do that, we may not even be saved at all because we don't have a heart that is denying ourselves and following after Christ. So be careful of bare minimums in our relationship with God. Jesus knew this was going to be a thing. So one day he'd been asked about forgiveness. He tells a story that goes right at the theology of Mark chapter 11, verse 26. I'm just going to read it because the story tells the story. I don't really have to stop and explain it because it's one of the parables that Jesus tells. You're like, oh, Matthew chapter 18, don't have to turn there, we'll put it on the screen. It says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring in his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in that owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold with his wife and his children and everything he owned to pay the debt. Verse 26, but the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. But the master was filled with pity for him, released him and didn't just release him, but forgave his debt. Hallelujah. Verse 28. But when the man who was just forgiven left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him just a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. And that dude fell down before him and begged, just a little more time, be patient with me, and I will pay it. He pleaded, verse 30, but his creditor would not wait. He had the man arrested, put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. The story goes on to say that the king, who had just forgiven his millions, got wind of this, and he calls the man evil. He had been forgiven millions, but he wouldn't return the favor and forgive thousands. So it's this idea, I can ask God to forgive me, but I don't have to forgive others. And that's not the person that God wants you and I to be. 
And that's not the person we want to be ourselves. So here's the question. Does God forgive us because we forgive others? Or do we forgive others because God first forgave us? And the theological scales, when you put this in light of all of Scripture, are tips to the second one. We need to forgive others because God first forgave us. Forgiving others is a sign that I've been touched by God. Forgiving others is a sign that I know what it's like to have been forgiven by God. And a lack of forgiveness towards people is a sign that I really and truly don't understand grace. I really and truly have never fully understood God's forgiveness in my life. So one of my, my favorite stories about Jesus is found in John's Gospel, chapter 7, and it's a story where the religious elite found a woman in the act of adultery. They wanted to use her embarrassment. They wanted to use her circumstance and situation to try to trap Jesus because the Old Testament is clear that if you were caught in the act of adultery, you were to die. So they catch this woman, and the reason if they catch her, there's got to be a man too, but he's not part of the equation. Probably one of their buddies. They didn't even bring him. But they bring this naked, embarrassed woman. Jesus is teaching. He's got a crowd around him. They throw her at the feet of Jesus. Teacher, what do you, what, what, she just got caught committing adultery. What do you think we ought to do, Jesus? And they're trying to trap him. He's like, well, what's the law say? The law says she should die. He's like, okay. That's what the law says. I'm, I'm not going to let you break the law. And the Bible says Jesus gets down in the dirt and he starts writing. We don't know what he's writing. I think it's fun to pretend he's writing their names. And their secret hidden sins. And he says, okay, she needs to die. So whoever is without sin, get a rock. Start throwing. And they probably all looked down and saw their name and their secret sin. The Bible says one by one, beginning with the older wise ones, they walked away. And Jesus finally has this beautiful conversation with someone. That's why I love this story. He said, where are your accusers? She says, I don't know, my Lord. He said, well, I don't accuse you either. Go sin no more. He saved her life. He saved her life. Beautiful, beautiful moment. Okay, so I want to, I want to, I want to pretend for, for just a minute. There are some people that think the woman in John 7 could be the woman in Luke 7. Let me show it to you. Luke 7, 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to come have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home, sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from the city heard he was eating there she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive this ain't no aqua velva stuff right she brought some expensive perfume and then she knelt behind him at his feet weeping her tears fell on his feet she wiped them off with her hair then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them the story goes on to say that the religious pharisees were offended doesn't he know who she is don't he know who's touching her feet we don't know it for a fact. It was fun to pretend. Some people think the woman that Jesus saved her life in John chapter 7 is the same woman that shows up in Luke chapter 7. And she has a lot to be thankful for. He saved her life. He changed her life. And she really, really, really knows what the grace of God feels like. See, I don't deserve to be here myself. Before any of you knew me, there was a whole other life about me. A failed marriage, first wife cheated on me. 
I was angry, I was mad. And I know the Bible said I had to forgive, but I didn't want to. And guess what? In those years, wasn't a lot of spiritual maturing going on because I was stuck in my unforgiveness. Eventually, I would go through a 12-step program called Celebrate Recovery, and I went through with a group of pastors. And I would always tell people, and I tell this story, out of you, and please don't be offended, but I would say, my life is kind of like Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville. Oh, it's all her fault. Well, it's nobody to blame. Okay, it's my fault. Like, that's just kind of how the progression of my life went. And, and through this 12-step process of Celebrate Recovery, one of the steps is you have to make amends. <laughs> I didn't want to. And they would talk about it in the group, like, hey, we're going to have to make amends. I'm good. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm good. I don't, I'm good. I, don't, I mean, there was that one guy that one time, but I'm good. But the Lord kept revealing to me, you have this baggage that is weighing you down. And so I did. And Jerry was very much involved in that old step of the way. I was Facebook Messenger and sent this message and like, mad at you for years for what you did. And, you know, I'm sorry for my part in that. And, and literally that night, the weight of a thousand pounds was off my chest. Like shocking. Remember when I was in the depths of going through the divorce and I was in the pain of all that and I like, wasn't eating, wasn't sleeping, just the heaviness of all that. I went to a, a meeting of pastors down at the Baptist Association and, and one of the older senior pastors was there and he meant well and his heart was full of compassion and like, you could just see the grief of my life. He put his arm around me and he goes, man, I'm really sorry, buddy. He goes, you would have made a fantastic senior pastor. He was trying to encourage me and he was trying to have sympathy for me. But what he was also saying is I was disqualified because I couldn't make it work. And you know what? He's right. I don't deserve to be up here. I don't deserve the life I have. I don't deserve to be married to the woman who to this day can still take my breath away with just one smile. I don't deserve the two amazing kids that I have. What I deserve is hell, just like the rest of us, because of our sin. But Jesus, who is full of mercy, Jesus, who is full of free grace, for some reason, he chose to redeem my life. He chose to redeem my calling. He chose to repurpose and redestine me. The devil thought he had won, but Jesus said, oh, what amazing grace, how sweet the sound that it saved a wretch like Brent. Forgiving others is a sign that we have experienced the goodness and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus in our own lives. Y'all with me? But how? We know we need to, we just don't want to. Here's the hard part. And, and some of you, in full fairness, good for you, preacher. You got cheated on, okay. Mine is so deep and so dark and what was stolen from me and maybe there was sexual molestation or abuse. Or, I, I fully understand that. So two quick things. Number one, forgiveness is not reconciliation. This is really important. Because there are people that I feel like have taught scripture wrong. And I don't know if you've been in that. I, I mean, I've heard guys say this. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. Because forgiveness is always possible. Reconciliation is not always possible. And I'm going to show that to you in the scriptures. Okay? Jesus called you and I to forgive 
He doesn't call us to fix them, right? Forgiveness is more about what is going on on the inside of me than it is releasing that person who hurt me of their consequences. Forgiving is not forgetting. They're two different words. They're not equal. They mean two different things. Listen, if someone abused you, you can forgive them. You can release that pain in your heart, but you better not forget. Oh, well, you know, okay, well, that was years ago. Here, you can keep my kids for the weekend. No! That would be putting other people in harm's way. I can forgive someone, but I don't have to forget the pain that they caused. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is releasing the pain, letting God heal you. So that hopefully, prayerfully, one day comes, you can see that person, you can hear their name, and not send you into a three-day depression. That it not send you into anger and rage. But sometimes we've been taught that forgiving is forgetting. And my fear is that that can create a cycle of abuse for some people who don't have the ability to set boundaries, right? Well, forgiving's forgetting, right? And so there are some people that just allow people to continue to hurt them, continue the abuse, continue to create and cause pain in their life. Somewhere we got this idea that forgiveness is reconciliation and they're two different things. There's a time and place for reconciliation. This is not what Jesus was after. Let me show you two in scripture. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. Somebody after first, came, first service came by and said, I have a new favorite verse. Romans 12, 18. If it is possible... As far as it depends on you. Like you do the best that you can. And as, if it's possible. Sometimes it's not possible. But as far as it depends on you. Then live at peace with everyone. Here's the problem. Some people don't like to live at peace. You do what you can do. As far as it depends on you. But some people don't want to live at peace. Some pe- and the, like right now is a good time to keep your eyes focused on me. And your arms tucked in. You don't want to call anybody out. But the truth is some people are addicted to drama. Just look right here. Don't call anybody out. I straight in. Listen, here, here's what I've learned. When I start making the faith choice that I'm going to forgive the person that hurt me, it removes those barriers we talked about a few minutes ago. And then I begin to grow and I begin to mature. I keep maturing. God keeps working me. God heals me. And then in the right time, if the other person is willing, if the other person has done the same thing, if they've matured, then and there can be a beautiful picture of reconciliation. Some of you are sitting beside your picture of reconciliation. Some of you are in this church as a picture of reconciliation, but there was a time where you were deeply wounded and deeply hurt, but you let God heal you. And you chose to take that step of faith in forgiveness. But to get there, you have to make that choice, that first step of faith in forgiveness. Forgiveness is always possible. Reconciliation is not. Amen, everybody? Lastly, I'll say this. There is an empowerment to forgive because you and I are not able to do this on our own. Some of that pain is so deep and so dark that we are not able to do that on our own. And God wants to help you. And quite frankly, we have to have his help. Because right now, some of you, I'm talking about forgiveness, right? We're talking about those deep hurts, those deep abuses, those deep things that were taken from you. Like some of us can't even imagine the hell that you've been through. You can't even begin to imagine saying those words, I forgive them. Even the thought of it brings tears or anger or fear. 
And that's the beauty of Mark 11, 25, and 26. God wants to help you. There is a power there to do what you can't imagine doing. I'm going to give you the secret sauce to forgive. Ready? Here's the secret formula. So how do I forgive? You take the focus off of them. You take the focus off the person who hurt you. You take the focus off of what they did to you. And you put the focus on yourself. But more importantly, you put the focus on what Jesus has done for you. Become the woman of Luke chapter 7. She didn't deserve God's grace, but she found it anyway. God's Holy Spirit wants to help you. But you have to stop thinking and obsessing about all they did. But you don't understand all, I I get it. But stop thinking about them and what they've done to you and start thinking about God and what he's done for you and what he's done in you. Maybe even think about the people that you've hurt. And you needed people to forgive you, and they did. When we didn't deserve it. Take the focus off of them, put the focus on what Jesus has done for you. There are some of you here today that are having regrets about coming to church. Because here's the deal. When we hear the word, we are responsible to do the word. We're accountable to what we've been taught. This is something we can't do on our own. This is something we have to have his help And the first step of faith is to say, God, I know I need to. And maybe today your prayer is, Lord, help me want to. Change my, I know I need to, to God, I want to. I I want them out of my mind. I want them out of my heart. I want that bitterness gone out of my life. I'm tired of that costing me in my current marriage. I'm tired of that costing me with my current situation. I'm tired of that costing me in my current relationships. And so, God, maybe my prayer today is to change me from I know I need to, to God, I want to. So here's here's what I'm going to do for you today. We're going to end service a little bit different, but I want to pray for you. Every Every time I preach on forgiveness, for some of you in the room, it strikes a big nerve. For some of you, you're married to that person that needs to walk through that process. Here's what I'm going to do. I want to pray for you that we can take that first step of faith, and I want that thousand pound gorilla lifted off your shoulders. Not going to come down front, not going to lay hand, not a healing line, right, right, right. Just, I want to pray for you. God, I know I need to do this. So it's one of those I believe but help my unbelief type moments. And for those of you in the room that are saying, Pastor, I hear you, but it's not time yet. I just can't. Listen, let's make room for what God wants to do today. Amen, everybody? All across this room, this is not a call to salvation. This is not a call to make things right with Christ. This is a call that God would begin in this moment to do a healing work in your heart where you could find the faith You could find what little bit of spiritual maturity to take that first step of faith towards forgiving that person so that you can move forward with your life. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us today. Because we need you. This is something we are incapable of doing ourselves. And when we talk about forgiveness and messages like this where the Bible tells us to forgive and even put some weight behind that, that we have to, Lord, it stirs something in us. It hits a nerve. It hits a pain that we don't even want to think about. Some of us have suppressed this in the deep corners of our brokenness. 
for years, maybe decades. But I can't deny over and over and over in the word, I'm commanded to forgive, I'm commanded to forgive, I'm commanded to forgive. Lord, some of us in the room, if we're being honest, we don't want to. We prefer being right. We prefer being a victim. Being a victim feels really good. We prefer to stay in our bitterness. Lord, we also recognize that stunts our spiritual growth. God, I thank you that I'm in relationship with you. I thank you that I'm saved. Lord, I thank you that your grace is bigger than my ability to forgive someone from my past. But today, I need to take that step of faith. Today, I need to forgive. Maybe right there where you're at. Just in a moment, I want you to, I want you to say it by faith. I forgive, and then you say their name. God, help me say it. I forgive and say their name. Today, God, I release my heart. I release my heart of pain, of bitterness, of victim mentality. God, I'm asking you to begin to heal me. In the beautiful, matchless name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody says, amen. You believe God did that this morning? Come on, let's give God praise. Amen. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.